So fear of the other is something that is is in all humans. So in as much as all humans are social beings, the trade-off is that we know that there's so much to gain. You know, we can gain practical things like resources, work better together, farm, land, do all that. But we also have belongingness needs. We have love. We have all these things that tie us to other human beings. The trade-off is that we're also letting people in that could harm us. So that's just basically like the the fact of as an individual person, if you include other people in your life, there's lots to gain, but there's also fear. And the and human social psychological motivation largely comes down to these two things. I'm Ilaria Baldwin. And I'm Alec Baldwin. And this is our podcast, What's One More? Hi, I'm Dr. Alexandria West. I'm a cultural psychologist at Duke University, and I'm here to talk to you guys today about bicultural identity and intercultural couples. Give us a little bit of your background and your specialty and the research you do at Duke. Yeah, so I'm a uh, cultural psychologist. So I work at Duke University as a postdoctoral research associate. So my primary job is just doing research. And um, my research focuses on bicultural individuals. So these are people who identify with uh, more than one culture. Um, They can be first or second generation immigrants, people who have spent a long time living in a different country outside of the country that they're born in, um, or biracial uh, individuals who have parents of different races. And I basically look at their unique experiences of what it's like to negotiate more than one culture. So I look at the different strategies that they use um, in order to do so. Some of these are, are effortful. Some of them are just come automatically, and it's just what it's like to be bicultural. Take us through where you work and how the origins of that place you're working at at Duke? Duke um, Identity and Diversity Lab. So that lab was founded by uh, Dr. Sarah Gaither. So that is a professor also at working at Duke University. And she started the lab a few years ago um, when she was hired by Duke University to look at just all the ways that people have multiple identities. We have multiple identities that we hold around our different social roles. So whether we're a mother, we're a daughter, we're a boss, all these kind of things. Um, and also about the different groups that we belong to. And uh, our lab mostly focuses on the diverse ways that these identities can vary and particularly um, the way that we hold multiple and that we're flexible between them. So they kind of flexibly guide our behavior. Now you yourself are Indian, Canadian, biracial, bicultural individual. What have you experienced throughout your life in regards um, to this as being part of your identity? Yeah, so I very much got into this research or got into this as science as what we would call a, a me-searcher sometimes. In, in, in research. And so that's basically I was inspired by some of the experiences that I've had myself growing up as biracial and bicultural. Um, some of the struggles in terms of feeling that you belong, you know, gaining acceptance, feeling that you you are accepted by your groups. I would say that in terms of my identity, there was there's been a lot of changes. When I was a kid, there wasn't really a lot of discussion around what it meant to be biracial or even like having a term for that. So growing up, it was uh, there was a lot of times where I struggled to kind of find where I fit. Am I like my dad is white Canadian. My my mom is from India. And, um, you know, am I Canadian? Am I Indian? How much do I have like a right to claim either either kind of these cultures uh, um, and any of the aspects? So um, as I was growing up, though, 
luckily, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, going past childhood, I became more and more appreciative and saw more and more strengths that there were to having multiple cultures. It always gave me more than one lens to see the world through. Uh, and I found that that really helped me with trying to empathize and understand other people's perspectives because there was never just a clear answer, like one one single truth that was the only way to save the world for me. How do you label yourself when people ask you, well, where are you from? Do you have like the short version that you tell people and then like the longer version? Yeah, I absolutely do. I think that the short version is something that I've uh, that took a, lo- a long time to kind of cultivate the the shortest, most accurate version. And it was pretty much what you had uh, referred to earlier that I'm a uh, Indian, Canadian, biracial, bicultural. That's that's um, the short version. That that's the <laughs> yeah, and that's the short version for sure. And that and that's only from being a scientist and finding the right words for this. When I was uh, like younger and growing up, there definitely weren't the right words. Everything felt like it wasn't totally true. It's very hard to say all of your identity and all of your identities, especially like as somebody who holds multiple in kind of a one sentence way that people actually want to hear. I mean, that's something that has really changed greatly in society And I think definitely for the better is that we're a little bit more interested now. People will give you more time of day to find out exactly what your identities are and not necessarily assume that it's whatever what you look like. Was the center uh, where you are now, was that what brought you down to the United States? Yeah, it definitely was. I was already doing a lot of this type of research uh, during graduate school, so during my master's and my PhD. But studying these types of topics, so studying biculturalism, like be it what it is to be a multicultural individual, and then also I also study intercultural romantic couples. Toronto is a very specific context in that it's a highly diverse city. So it's actually kind of what we would say is a minority majority city, more than half of the city are minority groups. So 51% of Torontonians are born outside of Canada. So it's one of the most diverse cities actually um, in the world that speaking like in, in terms of pure uh, national identity. Uh, like New York in that way. Yeah, very much like New York. Um, but then on top of that, in Canada, we actually have multiculturalism as our official immigration policy. And so that creates kind of a context in which in Toronto, all groups are really in theory, encouraged to keep their different heritage cultures and participate in each other's cultures. So we have a lot of cultural, you know, festivals and, um, you know, going out to eat pretty much the decision that you make is like which nationality of food you feel like eating today. And so like, (laughs) that's, that's kind of the starting point. Um, but doing the research in that kind of context, I was aware that that's not necessarily what all of the world is like. Um, and when we look at some of the struggles between um, cultural groups and when it comes to intercultural understanding or, um, you know, racial barriers, those sort of things, a lot of the issues are best studied in a little bit less diverse context because Toronto is a little bit strange in that way. So it's, it's a great place to study when things are going right. But not always like the, the greatest in terms of studying when conflict is, is really happening. So part of the motivation to move down to the States for me was to change this context and start to see, oh, okay, I'm coming from this maybe like halo little bubble of like, let's celebrate all of our cultural differences. But, um, there's a lot of research to be done in, in places where that's not always the case. And so that's definitely down here. What would you say was, uh, to the extent that you can say, what are the similarities and what are the contrasts between what you've seen in this area in 
the United States versus Canada? One of the main um, areas that we that I've seen myself and that we talk about in research is the idea of uh, an American melting pot. You you may have heard before. So within the U.S., traditionally speaking, minority cultural groups. So when I'm saying minority cultural groups, I'm saying uh, like pretty much anyone, any of the groups that aren't white mainstream American, usually like Protestant, if we're kind of bringing uh, religion into it. But if you if you vary on those other cultural groups in the States, you're expected to, you can come with that culture and bring it with you. But the ideal route for, uh, for an immigrant is that within their lifetime or over generations, they become more American. So they assimilate more. They might bring some pieces that kind of stick around, but that those kind of pieces um, of their culture melt into the fabric of America. So you can kind of think of the idea of like, you know, tacos. And like, if, if you think of soft shell corn tacos becoming what they are in Taco Bell today. So like that's, it's bringing in something that already existed, but it changes when it's here to have something that's very American. And um, the emphasis is on becoming more American even if that like slightly changes what Amer- like like the definition of what American is or what that sense can change. Well, the people were coming here to want to be a part of this. Exactly. They were coming so there's, here there's to want to fit in. There's a prioritization of American. Right. You can be other things as well, but on you top wanted of to be Italian American. Yeah, exactly. you wanted to be yeah Irish American, and you wanted to fit in. Do you feel like that's changing right now? I feel like right now it feels much more that everything was about mixing. And becoming and meshing and just just becoming all one into the United States, we're united, and now yeah. it's much more divide. Do you feel like there's a, a different trend? I think that that what you're speaking to is what we often want ideally, but the actual truth of it, I think, looks much more along the lines of conflict and segregation throughout like American history. So even the cultures that today we see as part, so they have melted into ours. So if you think of Italian American culture or Irish American culture, um, you think of, you know, spaghetti and meatballs right. and you think of like St. Patty's Day. Um, these are things that are now kind of melted into the American fabric, but in during the waves of of immigration where uh large groups came over from those countries it was definitely not the case landing here those groups are faced with discrimination they're not you know historically speaking they weren't even considered like racially white so like these types of categories that we say who's the majority who are the minority groups those are constantly changing across history and across time um often in response to mixing and 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 attitudes genuinely getting more positive but a lot of times it's not about that a lot of times it's about uh retaining power for the groups in power right you know most americans never travel overseas the whopping majority of people in the united states never get on a plane and travel to europe when you're in europe Europe itself is a community, you know, yes. uh, the way we look at New England as a community, you know, it's, it's a finite mass of land with an extraordinary amount of history and diversity. Whereas in the United States, there's a stunning number of people who are like, leave the U.S. Why would I do that? There's an ethnocentrism that's just numbing in among Americans. Do you find that's true? I'm talking about the travel part. Yes. Statistically, that is true. Statistically, it is true that uh, compared to a lot of other countries, even compared to Canada, um, Americans are less likely to travel internationally to leave. 
one point there is that uh, the U.S. is a country with great regional diversity. So you don't necessarily have to leave the U.S. Uh, in order to experience a lot of cultural differences. Like we know how, you, you know, the, the Northeast is very different than uh, California, which is very different than the South. These, these places have their own rich histories and traditions. However, what ends up happening is that when you don't have a chance to maybe leave and see the rest of the world, we do have you don't have as much of a chance to elaborate on kind of your representation of what those groups are. So for instance, as like in, in the US, we might just kind of think of Europe as just one place that, that there are Europeans, but that is completely glossing over the huge differences between a country like Italy and France to Norway. Do you think that that's partly responsible, though, the kind of that the United States has been historically, not through anybody's fault, just developed this way, kind of isolated in that way? And that's what's made it more likely to have a, I'm choosing my words very carefully here, a certain suspicions of the other who came over here. You know, a lot of people came over here historically in waves. There were historic waves mm -hmm. of this. And Americans seem to be more suspicious of people from different languages, different colors. Well, actually, research would speak to the fact that it's, we all have this capacity. So fear of the other is something that is is in all humans. So in as much as all humans are social beings, the trade-off is that we know that there's so much to gain. You know, we can gain practical things like resources, work better together, farmland, do all that. But we also have belongingness needs. We have love. We have all these things that tie us to other human beings. The trade-off is that we're also letting people in that could harm us. So that's just basically like the, the fact of as an individual person, if you include other people in your life, there's lots to gain, but there's also fear. And, the, and human social psychological motivation largely comes down to these two things. It's that when do we let our motivation to protect ourselves from others? So our fear of other people and what, how they might damage us lead our behavior versus our motivation to connect to other people. And when do we let the positives of what we can gain guide our behavior? So I would think that no matter where you go in the world, the idea of fear of the other is always going to be there. It really takes active steps uh, in terms of a group of people, in terms of society, the institutions that we put in place, the practices and policies to correct for that. So if as a society, we want to be on the connect side where, where people of diverse backgrounds are free to explore each other's cultures, to um, link up, to identify, to get married, to like, you know, all of, all of this great stuff to mix, then we really have to think about what are the things that we're putting in place that allow that or discourage that? So obviously things like in American history, like segregation is, uh, racial segregation is something that is not going to encourage these two groups to connect to each other. It's going to promote fear. But you would find that uh, globally, um, it's, it's not necessarily an American-only phenomenon. It's something that exists within all humans. Um, and as so societies, we together kind of design which way, which, which motivation we're going to let win. I think what you're saying is so fascinating because everybody needs to stop maybe and sort of think, all of our everything from the language to our culture, to our traditions, to who we hang out with, who we're allowed to hang out with, who we're where we travel. It's all choices. 
if if we do not practice the language, it dies. If we do yeah. not practice a culture, it dies. If we do not practice a religion, it dies. You know, it all of these things. It's just it, we as as people are are having to bring these forth and can make their longevity last because we practice them on a daily basis. And who is allowed to do this and who is allowed to do that, who is allowed to speak this, who is allowed to speak that is all human made. It's yes, not made by the absolutely. bunnies, it's not made by the fairies, <laughs> it's not made by the elephants, it is made by the humans. And we, I think we are that, constantly deciding it together. And and the other thing is that it's constantly changing. I'm happy that con- you, you yeah. brought up this point is because this kind of highlights the same way that I'm talking about a protect versus connect, you know, um, uh, motivation. Generally, when it comes to if we're talking about culture or language and our desire to have these groups preserve what they have. So to preserve their unique way of life, to preserve their values, their history, and not let that be lost. There's a tension between that and wanting it to stay in sort of a pure form, an unadulterated form of that culture. So one can think of like, maybe I always think that food is the gateway to culture. So food's always a great way to like be able to represent. One can think of a recipe that is like, you know, an Italian known as recipe that's been in the gener- the family for generations and not wanting it to ever change and wanting it to stay within the family. So in terms of who carries the culture and whether the culture changes. We have that motivation because we don't want to lose it, but that's at odds with the reality that cultures do change. And also that when cultures interact with each other, mixing happens. And then that's also how cultures evolve and how new cultures come into play. So those two motivations are completely understandable. Both of them sound right to us. We, right. we do, we do, we understand that we want, uh, you know, a group to be able to retain its own culture. Um, and there is something special about it being kept within that group. But on the other hand, that's also not really what we want for society when we're saying we want to be multicultural, when we say we want to be diverse, right. when we say that we want to be embracing and exploring right. each other's cultures. You can't have it both, both ways. What I wanted you to talk about is what you've observed about people in our society and other societies where they truly possess two cultures. For sure. That is one of my areas of uh, research expertise. So when I'm looking at different ways that biculturals handle having two cultures, biculturals largely in North American society face biases because we have a very hard time with the idea that someone could be more than one thing, especially when it comes to things like nationality or religion or race, these kind of uh, like bigger group identities um, that also carry culture. We don't have a lot of kind of mental bandwidth to process people who are more than one group. And we kind of act like these little category or border police where we want people to fall neatly into their boxes. And when they they cross into more than one box, we actually there's research to say that we actually have a uh, it's cognitively effortful. It's actually draining to our attention to be able to process people who are mixed in any sort of way. And that's because we just are so in love with our categories as, as, uh, as a society, but um, also just as, as people and social beings generally. What ends up happening is that um, just at baseline, so just by mere fact that a bicultural person identifies with two different cultures, there's bias against them people fear that they will be disloyal to at least one of their groups. So they question their loyalty. There's also stereotypes around um, identity confusion. There's an assumption that if somebody who isn't clearly one thing, but is 
choosing to be more than one. And again, there's an emphasis on it's seen as like you're choosing to be more more, more than one thing. But uh, in that situation, there's an assumption that you must be less like more confused about who you are, that like the only true self in North American society and Western society is a very singular self. There is one true self that exists at your core. That's everything that you are. Everything else is window dressing. But that's really not the case. That's not the case for bicultural people. But more importantly, it's not the case for anyone. Everyone belongs to multiple social groups. Like if I consider myself, I mean, yes, I have my national identity as a Canadian, but I'm also a scientist. I also, you know, identify as a scientist and with other scientists. I'm also a gamer. I love playing video games. And there, that side of me comes out when I'm doing that. And you'll behave differently with, with each one. All right. Well, thank you. Dr. West, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and share the show with your friends and help us grow. We'll talk to you guys next week.